Hello everybody, Daniel Barnett here from Outer Temple Chambers and welcome to episode 38 of Employment Law Matters. I'm recording this on Monday the 16th of March 2010 to publish tomorrow, Tuesday the 17th of March. I was planning to record this week's episode on settlement agreements and confidentiality clauses, but, you know, things take over. On Friday, just gone, I hosted a two-hour online meeting answering questions from over 100 HR professionals on coronavirus issues and hearing from different people on what their different businesses were doing to cope with the current situation. It was a really, really good session and we're going to be uploading the video and the transcript to the members area of www.hrinnercircle.co.uk in the next couple of days. If you're not a member, uh, it's the UK's leading community for smart, ambitious HR professionals. Do have a look, www.hrinnercircle.co.uk. We do occasionally let lawyers sneak through the gates if they ask really nicely, but it's overwhelmingly HR professionals. This morning I was making a snap decision. Am I going to stick with uh, the episode on settlement agreements and confidentiality clauses as I'd planned, or shall I have another episode dealing with coronavirus? Because last week's episode was uh, a recording of my LBC show where I answered questions on coronavirus for an hour. And frankly, we're all a bit sick of it. I actually posted, uh, if, if you don't follow me on Twitter, please do, at Daniel underscore Barnett. I posted on Twitter over the weekend that I was trying to decide whether to talk about coronavirus or not today. And um, a good friend of mine, Darren Newman, who many of you uh, will know, uh, he's at Daz Newman, and he appeared in an episode of Employment Law Matters a few weeks back, said to me, stay away from coronavirus, don't mention it. Um, everyone's getting fed up with it. And I agreed with him, but then I thought, I can't ignore it completely. So what I'm doing this week is talking about sending staff home. It's not coronavirus specific. It's more general, but obviously it's very apposite at the current time. And it's a little bit of a mixed bag I'm going to be covering today. I'm going to cover imposing working from home on staff. I'm going to spend a lot of time dealing with uh, layoff and short time, and a little bit of time dealing with dismissal for redundancy, and in particular, collective consultation in these unusual times. I'll also give you a couple of predictions about what I think, and as always, I have no inside knowledge, about what I think uh, the government's going to do in the next couple of weeks to change employment rights to help businesses get through the coming weeks and months. Just before we start, I have made available for anybody who wants it a free homeworking policy. Lots of businesses are looking at homeworking very, very seriously at the moment. And if you want to download my free homeworking policy, you can do so at www.policies2020, that's P-O-L-I-C-I-E-S, policies2020.com slash homeworking. Welcome to Employment Law Matters with Barrister Daniel Barnett. Let's start by thinking very briefly about imposed working from home. So can employers say you're working from home, even if the employee doesn't want to? There is, of course, a massive irony here, 
because many employers have spent the last few years refusing requests to work from home because they say the job can't be done from home. Now those very same employers are telling people work from home, work from home. The first thing to look at is whether there's a mobility clause in the employment contract. If the employment contract says we can require you to work within a reasonable distance of wherever the business is, then that's almost certainly going to cover uh, a contractual right to have the employee work from home. It is, of course, always subject to it being a reasonable and lawful order to invoke that mobility clause. And even if there's no mobility clause, it's still probably a reasonable and lawful order, subject to a couple of caveats I'm going to come to, to ask an employee to work from home. Just as a quick aside, if an employer sends somebody home without pay and there's no layoff or short-term clause in the contract, and I'll deal with those in a moment, there's a good chance of it being a constructive dismissal. But if you're an employee and you've been sent home without pay, I wouldn't sue for constructive dismissal because ultimately it's going to be tough finding jobs when things get a bit better because so many jobs will have disappeared. I'd stay in employment and I'd sue for unlawful deduction from wages. You can always look for another job if you want, but don't resign, don't claim constructive dismissal, especially because there's an argument that the employer has reasonable and proper cause for sending people home in the current climate. So go for unlawful deduction from wages if you're sent home without pay and there's no layoff and short time clause. But let's assume you, the employer, want to send someone home to work from home, not, not to be at home without pay. There's really four issues to think about. One is health and safety. Second is providing equipment. Third is paying for use of home services. And fourth is monitoring staff, making sure work's done. I'm only going to touch on these really, really briefly because all the considerations will be different for lots of different businesses. And these are really just headline points I'm going to cover. So first of all, health and safety. We all know that both under statutory regulation and under implied terms in the contract, an employer has to take reasonable care to ensure that it's providing a safe place of work a safe system of work. Well, that can be done reasonably easily just by asking the employee. You ask the employee to check that it's safe for them to work from home. And let's face it, most people working from home with a laptop aren't going to have many problems doing so. You ask employees to uh, confirm it's safe for them to work at home. And if they say it's not, you ask them why. Uh, maybe you pay a little bit for adaptations. It would probably be quite a small amount. And if they insist it's not safe and they have a credible reason, well, maybe they shouldn't be working from home in that case. In 99% of cases, I imagine health and safety is not going to be a real issue when an employee is asked to work from home. What about providing equipment? Well, again, if it's a operation that would normally be taking place in a factory with an assembly line, it's just not going to be practical to work from home. If it's a sales job requiring a telephone and a computer, if it's an admin job, working at home with a printer, a computer and a phone is probably going to be all anyone needs. Pretty much everyone has a computer, pretty much everyone has a phone, pretty much everyone has a printer. Maybe give some money for buying in additional paper for the printer. I'll talk about that in a moment. Maybe contribute something towards the additional electricity and uh, gas costs etc for use 
of the home as an office. But if you have to actually provide equipment, such as a laptop, such as a printer, such as a telephone, then it's simply a commercial decision as to whether you do that or whether you take other options, such as telling people we're making you redundant, we're placing you on uh, layoff or short time, uh, or, or indeed come into work and work from your normal place of work, which most people would rather not do at the moment. What about an employee who says, well, I do have a computer, I do have a phone, but I'm not going to use them for work purposes. I think it's a reasonable and lawful order in the current circumstances to say to people, uh, use your home equipment. And if they refuse point blank, it's a disciplinary matter that can be dealt with by a written warning and ultimately dismissal for conduct or maybe some other substantial reason as opposed to dismissal on grounds of redundancy. What about the uh, cost of these services? So maybe buying an extra paper, maybe uh, offering something towards gas, electricity, phone, other utility costs. Bearing in mind, of course, most people's phones have fixed sums per month and there's no additional costs incurred. Some employers will simply say, we will give you an additional allowance to reflect these additional costs. But it's also worth bearing in mind that many employees not all, but many employees will be having substantial savings on commuting costs. They won't be paying for petrol. They won't be paying for a train ticket every day. So you can say offset one set of costs against the other. That's clearly different if an employee has an annual season card uh, and so they've, they've paid for a year up front and in those circumstances they're not saving any money by working from home. In those circumstances as an employer you ought to be offering to pay something towards the additional costs of working from home. And what about monitoring staff? Well it's difficult. I mean you, you can bring in an entirely new level of management to do monitoring of the output and review people's emails and make sure they're actually working but that introduces all sorts of new complicated issues. I think the reality for the uh, two, three, four months that this social isolation is going to be continuing for is that most employers would rather have staff sitting at home doing 50% of the work productivity that they would be doing if they were actually in work, rather than sitting at home being paid and doing none of it. By the way, that's a, a, a point I picked up from Lord Cecil Smythe. I suspect that's not his real name on Twitter. Uh, so thanks for that comment. It's quite a good point. But also bear in mind that the majority of staff who are able to work from home are going to be massively grateful. They're going to be looking at their colleagues on zero-hour contracts or who are self-employed or who are self-isolating without pay. And they're going to be thinking, this is as good as it gets. Thank you to my employer. And they're not going to be looking to slack off. They're going to be looking to do the best job they can in order to try to avoid the risk which everybody knows is a possibility of future redundancies and them being selected because of lower levels of productivity working from home. So although it's important to be aware of the productivity of people at home, first of all, it's probably going to be pretty good for most people. And second of all, 50% productivity is better than no productivity if an employer has chosen to send people home and as you know, when employers choose to send people home, they have to pay anyway.
So I said I was going to be relatively brief on imposing working from home, and uh, that is indeed it. Uh, It was about 10 minutes. I thought I'd be less than that. But the other main topic I want to talk about is layoff and short time. Known as LOST, L-O-S-T, layoff and short time. Layoff is a form of temporary redundancy. It's where a business says to an employee, we've got no work for you, go home, we're not going to pay you. Short time, it's got a statutory definition. Short time is where you say to an employee, we've got less work from for you, we're going to supply you with less than half, that's the statutory definition, less than half of your normal amount of work, and we will only pay you for the work that you do. Layoff and short time uh, was a bit of an anachronistic residue from the 1970s when manufacturing dominated British industry. And it fell out of practice in the 80s and 90s. But then in the 2008 recession, it really came back into fashion with it being brought back into a lot of contracts. And it's it's now not uncommon to see a layoff and short time clause in a contract, especially in manufacturing industries and professional services firms. But it is, as I say, helpful to think of it as temporary redundancy. Now, it does need, in order to send people home on layoff, or short time, there does need to be an express clause in the employment contract saying we can lay you off or put you on short time. Obviously, that's not the wording that will be used, but that's the gist of it. You cannot generally imply the right to lay off because under a contract of employment, people are entitled to be paid if they're ready, willing and able to work. The essence of layoff and short time is you're reserving the right not to pay them, even if they're ready, willing and able to work. So unless there's an express contractual clause, it's very difficult to imply one. There is an old case from the 1980s called Bond Against CAV Limited, which said you can only imply a layoff or short time clause if there's a custom of laying people off in that particular business and the terms of doing so are clear so that it can be said the employee would have known that was an implied term when starting employment. Reality is, if it's not in the contract, you can't do it. But let's assume it is in the contract. Even when laid off or on short time, employees don't quite get nothing. They're still entitled to something called a guarantee payment. Now, it it really is tuppence halfpenny. It's £29 per day, and that goes up to £30 a day from the 6th of April. And here's the real killer. There's a maximum of five days of guarantee payment payable in a rolling three-month period. So that's a maximum payment of £145 over three months, £150 after the 6th of April. So it's pretty much nothing, but as an employer, you have to be aware if you're laying someone off, you do have to pay that £29-30 a day for up to five days. If you've laid someone off, holiday continues to accrue at the normal rate during any period of layoff and short time. And if an employee isn't available for work anyway, for example, because they're unwell, they're not treated as being laid off. Uh, And that's a case called, it's a really old case, it's an employment tribunal case or industrial tribunal as it was called Johnson against Knowles Lee Caravans, K-N, 
O-W-S-L-E-Y. Johnson and Knowsley Caravans from 1974, the very earliest days of employment rights, of modern employment rights. And in that case, a tribunal held that, notwithstanding the fact that the rest of the workforce was laid off at a time when Mr Johnson was away from work because he was ill, the reason Mr Johnson had no work was sickness and not layoff. I think a lot will depend on which comes first, though, and I'm not sure tribunals would adopt the same approach today. If someone's laid off and then becomes sick, it's harder to say the principal cause of the work isn't the layoff. It's much more up in the air for argument. Now, this next bit's important. If somebody is laid off or on short term for either four consecutive weeks or for six weeks in a rolling 13-week period, the employee is entitled to resign and treat themselves as dismissed on grounds of redundancy, meaning a statutory, not a contractual if it's enhanced, but a statutory redundancy payment is payable. Obviously, they need two years employment to do this because you don't get a statutory redundancy payment if you've worked for less than two years. I'll just say that again. If someone's on layoff or short time for either four consecutive weeks or for six weeks in a rolling 13-week period, they're entitled to resign and treat themselves as dismissed on grounds of redundancy, thus getting a statutory redundancy payment. Now, there's a ridiculously anachronistic and complicated procedure to trigger this. And of course, what would employment law be like without ridiculously complicated procedures? Here it is. First of all, the employee needs to send a letter within seven days of hitting that four consecutive weeks or six out of 13 saying they intend to claim a redundancy payment. If the employer does nothing within seven days of getting that letter, the employees then entitled to resign within the next three weeks and claim statutory redundancy. But to stop that, the employer can send a letter back, and that's known as a counter notice. The employer can send a letter back within seven days of getting the employee's letter saying that within the next four weeks, they expect to return to normal for at least 13 weeks. So to stop this automatic statutory redundancy payment, an employer can serve a counter notice saying that within the next four weeks, they expect to return back to normal hours for at least 13 weeks. Sending that letter stops the employee getting their redundancy payment, even if it's not true. If it turns out not to be true, the employee can go to an employment tribunal and ask the employment tribunal to decide whether they should get a statutory redundancy payment. But of course, that'll take a year to get in front of a tribunal. Having said that, if an employer sends that letter without believing it to be true, just to avoid paying a statutory redundancy payment, it's probably a breach of trust and confidence and the employee can resign and claim constructive dismissal and, of course, the redundancy payment. Query what additional compensation the employee can get for constructive dismissal because the basic award will be the same as their redundancy award, 
they don't get it twice, and it might not be obvious to see that they'd get any significant compensatory award in circumstances where they're not being paid anyway. But there's that possibility. The employee has to give their contractual notice when resigning. So if you're on three months notice as an employee, you have to give three months notice before you get your statutory redundancy. If you don't give notice, you don't get the redundancy payment. Now, I think this is my prediction. As I said at the outset, I have no inside knowledge at all. But I think there's a real chance that within the next few weeks, the government is going to bring in emergency legislation giving employers a statutory right to lay staff off, even if it's not in the contract of employment. So that would mean, if I'm right, that would mean all employers will be able to send staff home without pay when there's no work available for them to do. And maybe this complicated consecutive four-week, six out of 13 uh, rolling weeks notice, counter-notice provisions will be simplified, although I suspect not. I suspect there will simply be a statutory right to layoff in certain circumstances where there's no work available brought in within the next few weeks. That's what I want to say on layoff in short time, just very briefly on dismissal for redundancy, where a business is struggling in the current climate and they're contemplating making uh, redundancies. And this is the cold, hard reality. Unfortunately, lots of businesses are going to be doing this. We all know the definition of redundancy. I'll simplify it. It's where a place of work closes down or where there's a reduction in the employer's need for employees to do a particular kind of work. When more than 20 redundancies are being contemplated at one establishment within a period of 90 days. The Trade Union and Labour Relations Consolidation Act says that the employer has to consult for a minimum of 30 days before the dismissals with either a trade union or elected employee representatives. If there are 100 people being made redundant, then they have to consult for at least 45 days. But there is a defence. Section 1887 of the Trade Union and Labour Relations Consolidation Act says, and I quote, if there are special circumstances which render it not reasonably practicable for the employer to comply, end quote, and that means to consult for 30 or 45 days, then they just have to take reasonable steps to comply, reasonable steps to consult. So is coronavirus a special circumstance which makes it not reasonably practicable to consult for 30 or 45 days? I think probably yes, at least for now. There's an old Court of Appeal case from 1978 called Clerks of Hove against the Baker's Union. And in that case, the Court of Appeal said that although insolvency is not normally a special circumstance, if a sudden disaster strikes a company, making it necessary to close that company, then that sudden disaster is capable of being the special circumstance. Now, the facts of that case dealt with a business closing, but as a matter of principle, the same must apply to redundancies that don't actually involve the whole business closing. And I think that coronavirus can fairly be classified at the moment as a sudden disaster. In a month's time, it won't be. 
because we'll have known about it for longer. But right now, it's come on so quickly, it's reasonably likely that a tribunal will accept that it's a sudden disaster. But that doesn't mean, of course, that employers don't have to consult at all. They still have to make reasonable attempts to consult. It just doesn't have to be for the statutory minimum of 30 or 45 days in order to avoid paying a protective award of up to 90 days pay per employee. So just finishing up, I've tried to do something that's coronavirus related, but also has more general application. Next week, I'm going to talk about employment law changes coming into force on the 6th of April with no mention of coronavirus at all. Just dull stuff like written particulars of employment and the extension of IR35. I'm looking back on those calm little changes, which two months ago employers were panicking about and thinking those were the days. Just a reminder, uh, if you want to download my homeworking policy, it's free of charge and it's at www.policies2020.com slash homeworking. Thank you so much for listening. Do drop me an email with what you think uh, about these podcasts at podcast at danielbarnett.co.uk. And if you don't subscribe, please, please do. It's really easy to subscribe. Either subscribe in your normal podcast player by searching up Employment Law Matters or go to my website, danielbarnett.co.uk slash podcast, and you can subscribe from there. Thank you very much for listening. I'm Daniel Barnett from Outer Temple Chambers. Bye bye. Any information on this podcast is for general guidance only. Always seek legal advice. Please see full terms at www.danielbarnett.co.uk forward slash podcast terms.